Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back everyone to the Auxiliary Chamber. I am honored to present this extended episode on the Russian invasion of Ukraine through the lens of international law. Before starting, I would like to say this episode aims to discuss the crisis from a solely academic point of view. Specifically, we're looking through the lens of international law, rather than an account of the war, its strategic developments, or delve directly into the ever-growing toll on the civilian population and their stories. We want to leave room to reflect on how different elements of the media, politicians, and international law's own history impact the unfolding crisis. This episode was recorded on the 21st of March, 2022, almost a full month into the invasion. A war can never be the answer, and we hope to contribute in part to the growing awareness, understanding, and combating this categorically unjust and illegal invasion. I am joined this episode by Dr. Vivek Bhatt, Assistant Professor of Public International Law and Human Rights at Utrecht University, having been awarded as his PhD in Law at the University of Edinburgh in 2022. Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Vivek Bhatt, for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. Very excited for our talk. I think where we could begin is maybe with a very broad question. We know that, of course, Russia has invaded Ukraine. But what does this actually mean for international law and specifically for its frameworks? And I was going to ask if you could give us a bit of an introduction to that and what type of international laws we should think of. Absolutely. Um, it's a big question. I think that there are so many legal frameworks that are engaged by what's going on right now. I think obviously the, the first and foremost framework that we have to think about is the prohibition of the use of force, uh, which is recognized in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, but is also a norm of customary international law. And obviously we are aware and we've seen so many international lawyers in the past few weeks say that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a violation of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, of this prohibition of the use of force. But interestingly, Russia also cites Article 51 of the UN Charter, uh, which recognizes the customary right uh, of states to use self-defense in the incidents of an armed attack on their territory. And interestingly, Russia says that its so-called special military operation in Ukraine is lawful self-defense of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, which it has recently recognized as being independent states. So that's one, and I guess the clearest legal framework that, that we're dealing with here. We also have, and we can talk a little bit more about this, this in in terms of the ICJ, but we also have the Genocide Convention, which has kind of been brought into this conflict in quite interesting ways. Russia says that it's acting to stop a genocide against Russian people in eastern Ukraine, um, and Ukraine has obviously contested this in its recent institution of proceedings against Russia at the ICJ, but we can talk a little bit more in detail about that in a moment. So we also have international humanitarian law, which is referred to as the laws of war or the laws of armed conflict by some people. Uh, The 1949 Geneva Conventions, uh, which are also in most part considered to be customary international law, apply in all situations of armed conflict. 
And what we're seeing right now is the consistent emergence of reports that Russia is failing to respect its obligations under those conventions. In particular, we're hearing almost on a daily basis right now that Russia is disregarding what we call the fundamental principle in IHL or international humanitarian law of distinction between civilians and combatants and also between civilian objects and military objectives. So we're hearing reports, for example, and I won't go into these in detail, but that Russian forces have targeted hospitals, shopping centers, premises like theaters that are being used to shelter civilians, and even civilian evacuation corridors themselves from various cities around Ukraine. And if these reports are accurate, the actions of Russian forces uh, would likely amount to grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. And we can go into the consequences of that a little bit later on. I will also note here that common article one of the Geneva Conventions requires all state parties to promote respect for international humanitarian law. And I point this out because of the involvement of, on both sides of the conflict of non-conventional forces that may not have had any formal military training on international humanitarian law. So on one side in Russia, we have separatists in Eastern Ukraine who are backed by the Russian government. And then on the other, we have Ukrainian civilians who've obviously been called upon, as we've heard, to arm themselves and prepare to defend their cities. Now, this creates the risk that we may see more violations of the Geneva Conventions on both sides if and when the scale of fighting escalates. And it highlights the need for all states, so not just Ukraine and Russia, but within the international community, to do their utmost alongside organizations like the ICRC to promote respect for IHL, and also to keep disseminating information about these laws as widely as possible for people who may be participating in this conflict. Linked to international humanitarian law, we also have the area of international criminal law. Um, and we can go on to talk a lot more about what's happening in, in specific avenues. But obviously, we're hearing reports again, as I've already said, of various international crimes being perpetrated in Ukraine, including grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, the crime of aggression, and quite possibly crimes against humanity as well. We then lastly have international human rights law. I think that one of the things that we're hearing about the most right now is the fact that this conflict has given rise to the largest refugee crisis in Europe in, in decades, as well as massive internal displacement within Ukraine. And obviously all of these people who are displaced by the conflict are not only entitled to the protections of the refugee conventions, but also the core human rights treaties, um, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So very important, I think, to be aware of the implications of this conflict for children in particular. There's also a human rights law dimension within Russia that's important to bear in mind here. So freedom of association and expression are seriously being curtailed right now, even though they've been under threat there for a very long time. Uh, the Russian government has passed new criminal laws to curtail the freedom of the press. And they've cracked down on thousands of Russian civilians um, who have risk their own safety and their lives to protest against the war um, in cities like St. Petersburg in particular. It's also important, I think, to think more broadly here about 
the human rights law implications of this conflict. Human rights law in many ways provides us with a way of highlighting whose stories aren't necessarily being told as widely right now, and particularly within the legal discipline. So we're hearing about people of color who are facing discrimination at the borders of Ukraine with its neighbors. We're hearing that LGBT plus communities within Ukraine are facing extremely dangerous conditions especially if Russian forces take control of Ukrainian cities or if a Russian puppet government is installed in Ukraine. We've seen this um, over the past few years in Chechnya as well, where a government very loyal to Russia has been installed and is known to be persecuting LGBT communities. And just today, I interestingly saw that Human Rights Watch has reported that the conflict and the sanctions against Russia are massively exacerbating global hunger particularly in the Middle East and North Africa. So this conflict has broader implications under human rights law as well, just as all other conflicts do. Um, and it'll be important to keep an eye from a legal perspective on those implications as well. I agree. I think you mentioned a really important point that there are so many different aspects to the conflict. And I think, as we'll maybe touch on a little bit later, but sometimes I feel like there's almost a danger of tunnel visioning into what is happening, where you almost, you use the blanket statement of international law as being breached to say that Russia's invasion is unlawful. And then almost that's where the wider discussion ends, just it's being breached and this is a bad thing, we have to do something about it. But it's, as you mentioned, it's really important to look at really the different sides that are happening and what can be done on each individual level, especially within these frameworks. So thank you for that summary. I think it's very important and also not easy to find. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Maybe going on to then the second, maybe the other side of this coin is we see these international frameworks that are being violated or are being threatened to be violated. And then comes, of course, the question, how can international law respond to these crises? What tools and what mechanisms do we have at our disposal to make sure that A, this ends and B, that potentially culpability is found with whoever or what side is important or necessary in this case. And we've kind of identified three or four different elements that I thought we could maybe go through. And these are the ICJ case, the ICC investigation, the Security Council and its resolution, and then lastly, the Aggression Tribunal, where I think I have a little bit more to maybe touch upon. If it's okay for you to go through, I'll give a small introduction to each of the first three little cases, and then we can touch a little bit deeper on the aggression tribunal. Absolutely. So then to start with the ICJ, so the International Court of Justice, which to me is almost one of the most well-known and well-established tools that we have at our disposal for international law. The ICJ is tackling this issue in, I believe, quite an unconventional way and quite an interesting way from looking at a legal auction point of view, where Ukraine has filed an application instituting proceedings against Russia concerning a dispute looking to the interpretation, application, and fulfillment of the Genocide Convention. As you mentioned in your summary, Russia has indicated that it is doing this invasion out of self-defense. One of those big claims is that the people in Donetsk and Lunansk are being subjected to a genocide, a genocide by the Ukrainian government on these Russian people. Ukraine has requested provisional measures to actually demonstrate that they are not perpetrating genocide 
of course, when we think of the genocide convention and especially the ICJ, we think of cases like Myanmar where it's the other way around, where we're trying to prove that it's happened. And in this case, we're trying to prove that it hasn't happened. Ukraine has done this so that it could also get provisional measures, specifically provisional measures that would call for Russia to stop its invasion, considering if there wouldn't be genocide happening, the call for self-defense would be a lot less strong. So I was asking if you maybe had some thoughts on this application of the Genocide Convention and on Russia's claim to self-defense and how that works within this application. Absolutely. The first thing I will say is that I like the wording of your question and the way that you're characterizing this here. Um, I had a really helpful conversation with a colleague of mine at Utrecht University named Jessica Dorsey last week. And she provided some wording, which I'm really grateful for, and that she said, international law hasn't assumed a life of its own. It's not a system that kind of operates on its own. It's a set of rules, and it's about the choices that we as academics and as international lawyers make about how we're going to enact those rules. And so the first thing that I will say with the ICJ is, it is interesting to say, see the fact that this is being considered through the lens of the Genocide Convention, but that is actually a choice that's been made by uh, the lawyers instructed by Ukraine. Um, that is the choice that they have made um, in terms of the way that they're gonna go about this. And I think that that has created a really interesting situation for us to observe and, and to watch the ICJ's reasoning. Indeed, that was the case uh, when it indicated provisional measures last week. So I think that there's a lot of untangling to do here mm -hmm. in, in thinking about what's going on with the ICJ. First of all, it's to think about what the dispute actually is that the ICJ is dealing with. And we have kind of two prongs to this dispute. The first, as you've already said, is the question of whether there is a genocide ongoing in Donetsk and Luhansk. There is disagreement between these two parties, between Ukraine and Russia, about whether or not that's happening. And then secondly, also goes on to the, the thing that you've already mentioned, which is the question of whether Russia's use of force can be justified by reference to Article 1 of the Genocide Convention, uh, which obviously prohibits genocide and requires states uh, to respond to it when it's ongoing as well. Now, Ukraine's claims, interestingly, um, are that Russia should have seized the organs of the UN in accordance with Article 9 of the Genocide Convention, that it shouldn't have taken unilateral military action, and that instead um, it should have gone to the UN as the convention requires any state to do in this particular situation. Accordingly, and this is where things get really interesting in terms of the argumentation, the Ukraine says that it has a right not to be subjected to military operations on its territory based upon claims of a breach of Article 1 of the Genocide Convention. And secondly, that it also has a right not to be subject to false claims of genocide. So these are really interesting legal arguments that are being made, right? You can see that the law is actively being uh, construed in a particular way to bring out this outcome that Ukraine is looking for. It is careful to be aware, though, at this stage with the provisional measures that the ICJ has indicated that it has not found anything about whether or not a genocide is actually occurring right now in eastern Ukraine. And the court was very, very careful to set that out a number of times in, a, I think, a 22-page 
decision on the provisional measures last week. Um, it said that these rights that Ukraine says it has are plausible. That is its wording. That these are plausible rights, that it has a right not to be subject to false claims and not to be subject to military operations on that basis. And that Russia's ongoing military action poses an urgent risk of irreparable prejudice to this plausible right. So the ICJ has been very careful, um, as we often see it is. Tony Yangi uh, once referred to the ICJ as politic, cautious, and meticulous. And you can see exactly that. That at this stage, all the ICJ has done is said that these rights are plausible. And upon that basis, it has said that Russia uh, needs to cease all its military actions in Ukraine, that it needs to stop backing rebels that are engaging in military actions. But it's also asked both parties, so Ukraine and Russia, to refrain from any actions that may aggravate the situation further. And that's been the source of quite a lot of intrigue in international law circles uh, since that decision as well. So lots of interesting things going on there, but also important to be aware of the political dimension of this. The fact that this response is also being limited by the fact that Russia refused to participate in those proceedings. It sent a letter to the ICJ about its position, but that is all. And it also refuses to abide by uh, what the ICJ has told it to do. So obviously we've got these legal responses, but then also attitudes towards the law um, on the part of Russia to think about. Mm -hmm. The legal responses and the political responses are, whether we like it or not, often not as separate as we might like them from the law perspective. And yes. I think that probably the best case to further talk about that is the current Security Council and its vetoed resolution and then the movement to the General Assembly. So very briefly, the UN Security Council had three emergency meetings, which from my perspective, as of course not being in those meetings, are quite sensational with the fact that in one week we started with an emergency meeting to please make sure that the war did not escalate. Then the second emergency meeting uh, where the Ukrainian ambassador was able to state that something like 30 minutes ago, Russia had declared war on Ukraine. And then the third emergency meeting had the vote on a Security Council resolution that was backed by the parties which would deplore Russian intervention and which would urge it to withdraw all of its military forces and, of course, try to remain peaceful. Russia, as head of the current UN Security Council, uh, vetoed this resolution, and which led the UN Security Council to call into practice the United for Peace resolution, which allowed the GA to vote on the resolution, which was quite unheard of at this point or hadn't been used in a very long time. So I'd be very interested to know what your thoughts are on this progression at the Security Council and how this United for Peace resolution has been used to call the GA to action. Sure. First of all, again, as you've already just said, this close relationship with law and politics again manifests in these developments that we're seeing between the Security Council and the General Assembly. Now, as many of your listeners might know, uh, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, China, France, Russia, the US and the UK have veto powers, which means that they can vote down any proposed resolution of the Security Council. The outcome at the Security Council level that this resolution would not pass was obviously 
very much foreseeable. Uh, we knew that Russia would, would vote against that resolution. So there were no surprises there, really. And it obviously goes back to the calls that international lawyers and international political theorists have been making uh, for years and decades now that there needs to be some kind of reform of the UN Security Council. We saw those calls previously, for example, with the Syrian conflict, where Russia also blocked any concerted action by the UN Security Council. So a lot of that was uh, really a foregone conclusion. We knew that this was going to be the case. But as you said, a lot of people have just now learned about this Uniting for Peace mechanism, uh, which came about through the UN Security Council's Resolution 377, which was passed in 1950. And it allowed the General Assembly, as you said, to step in if the Security Council fails to exercise its responsibility, which is enshrined in the UN Charter to maintain international peace including in instances of breaches of the peace and acts of aggression. Now, the interesting thing about this mechanism was that it was actually designed to work around further Soviet votes in the Security Council in the course of the Korean War. So it's really interesting now to see it being enacted just recently in order for the General Assembly to pass a resolution about Russia and Ukraine. And as you said, that resolution demands that Russia ceases its military activity in Ukraine immediately. Now, again, there are these questions of the law and politics and how these run into one another. Many of your listeners might already know that resolutions of the UN General Assembly are not in and of themselves legally binding. But they are significant in other ways, and I think that we shouldn't be quick to discount this UN General Assembly resolution either. They are significant, for example, as indicators that there's widespread agreement in the international community that Russia's actions are a breach of its international obligations. So there is still legal significance to what's happened at the General Assembly, um, and that's well worth keeping in mind. It's also interesting, I think, just to see, again, the ways in which these mechanisms have kind of been found, that they've been brought out from historical obscurity almost. As you've said, so many people didn't know that this existed. So I think it's interesting to see the kind of creativity in the ways in which the law is being enacted right now. I completely agree. And then the next section I'm going to kind of quickly combine, which is the ICC and the possible aggression tribunal. The ICC, Prosecutor Karim Khan, indicated in late February that he wanted to open an investigation, which his call was heeded, as 39 state parties referred the situation to his office, which is interestingly enough referred the situation from late 2013 onwards, indicating that, of course, this conflict is a longer unrolling, indicating that the conflict, of course, is longer ongoing than just the last month. Then the aggression tribunal is, of course, a very theoretical mechanism. This, of course, doesn't exist yet, and the discussions aren't about whether or not we should create one or not. This is also seemingly where unity amongst international scholars or international law scholars seems to divide a little bit more. Up until now, most of what we discussed Everyone has agreed upon, everyone has watched on with bated breath, let's say, but also very much in unison. And this has been quite a different contrast. So to start, there was a call to create an aggression tribunal. This was signed by noted international scholars calling for this creation, and then specifically a tribunal for the punishment of the crime of aggression against Ukraine. This was aimed to complement the actions taken by other mechanisms 
with just a limited focus on the crime of aggression. One of the main reasons why this is, is because the ICC also has jurisdiction over the crime of aggression, but that is currently very difficult for it to exercise, especially over Russia. Because of the large discourse, I thought it'd be interesting to maybe present first arguments for and then arguments against, and if it's okay with you, then hear your thoughts on, on those. Absolutely. I must preface beforehand that these arguments come primarily from a very important and very well-written opinion Juris thread, which was mm -hmm. championed by Kevin John Heller and presenting arguments for, and then Perry McDougall on opinions against. Starting with the arguments against, because the arguments for were written in response to the arguments against, the arguments against raise five key issues. The first is a practical issue of creating such a tribunal. Almost all of the evidence and suspects of the crime are hidden in Russia, whose compliance with the tribunal would be extremely unlikely, removing UN Security Council support. Secondly, the Russian support would be an unmissable element in the functioning of such a tribunal. Yet if this support were to come about and Russia were to support such a tribunal, wouldn't it be better to almost place this support in different places? Wouldn't it be better for it to support a domestic tribunal in Russia? Or wouldn't it be better to secede to the ICC and allow these international mechanisms that already exist to function with this hypothetical support? Secondly, the tribunal would send a very strong message to Russia, united world, but also united international law. However, the question is whether or not this message is stronger than the General Assembly's message right now if the tribunal is never able to prosecute anyone. Does it show a message of a toothless international law if we create this tribunal and is unfortunately, because of other circumstances, unable to really function? There are legal questions as to whether or not they'd be able to waive the personal immunities of Russian defendants, as the tribunal would most likely not be established under the Security Council. And fourthly, the costs the tribunal would impose, and whether all this money should be spent maybe elsewhere. And then lastly, and also very important and a bit more theoretical, is the selectivity of international law. And in some words, blatant prioritization of Western nations and their struggles and potentially also their views of justice, as other atrocities are not given the same money or the same attention, let alone the fact that, of course, this is supported by countries who led potentially alleged, but most certainly an illegal invasion of Iraq. Then we have the arguments for the creation of a tribunal. The first would be the inability of domestic foreign courts to actually take up this matter. And within that, also a high likelihood that Ukrainian courts would most likely also not be able to share the burden of prosecuting Russian citizens or Russian heads of state. Further, Kerry McDougall argues that the tribunal could be established either via international treaty or via the UN Security Council, the UNGA, as through an agreement between Ukraine and the UN, a tribunal could be approved by the General Assembly, such as the Extraordinary Chambers and the Courts of Cambodia or the Special Court for Sierra Leone, further emphasizing that there is a big difference between relying on Russian support and relying on Russian acknowledgement of the tribunal, let's say. She very importantly dismisses the financial costs as a negative. She very much places this this crisis at the forefront of international law and stating that if we see these financial costs as a reason to not pursue a justice that we might be able to attain right now, we should maybe, in her words, 
check our priorities within international law. To the selectivity argument, she realizes also, or she mentions that there will be blatant selectivity within international law. This is almost unfortunately a fact that we can't ignore. Just because this fact exists doesn't necessarily mean that we should avoid currently selecting this issue for this tribunal. Also because since the ICC has approved the aggression amendment and there now is a united definition, this is the first blatant violation of the aggression um, definition. This does not do both of their articles credit and I call everyone to read them and read the other arguments. But just to have briefly spoken about some arguments, I wanted to ask what your thoughts were and how you thought this conversation went looking at international scholars and their discourse. Sure. I mean, first on the tribunal itself, I will say I'm highly sympathetic to Kevin John Heller's arguments against it, um, particularly on, on the practical difficulties. So those of gathering evidence um, and finding witnesses and defendants themselves um, who would likely be um, in Russia and quite difficult to access. And those are obviously vital considerations before uh, committing to a, a tribunal of this financial scale. But I will also say that the appetite for an aggression tribunal in general reflects the messiness of some of the developments that we've seen in the enforcement of international criminal law in recent years, and particularly the amendments to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court that established the definition of the crime of aggression. Now, these amendments essentially set out that the Office of the Prosecutor could not investigate or prosecute crimes of aggression committed by non-nationals of states, parties, or outside of their territory on the basis of state referral or on the initiative of the Office of the Prosecutor. So essentially, you have a situation in which the jurisdiction of the ICC works differently in terms of the crime of aggression than it does for the other core crimes, which are indeed already being investigated in Ukraine. And that is creating some of these issues that we're seeing that are leading to these calls for the establishment of an ad hoc tribunal. And so I think these calls are really a, a symptom of the messiness of the way in which this definition of aggression was brought about. I will also say that there is a question of legitimacy here. So again, Kevin John Heller has already written about um, who is going to be constituting this court. And I think that it's particularly problematic, and maybe we can talk about the politics of this in a moment, that these this court would be set up by states such as the US and the UK, which were indeed military aggressors in and of themselves earlier on in this century. And there are some serious questions that we need to ask about whether or not such a court could really bring about justice, whether about whether it would be properly constituted. My last point and my question um, on this front is about the relationship between justice and peace. The calls for a tribunal to deal with aggression right now maybe reflect a desire more broadly for judicial intervention in a conflict to be a way of bringing about peace in and of itself. And I think that this is maybe underpinned by an admirable but dangerous assumption that international law really matters to the perpetrators of military aggression in that moment, that they will accept the jurisdiction of international courts and tribunals and that they'll stand down if, that they'll, if they're told to do so. 
Russia's refusal to participate in the ICJ proceedings that we've already talked about really goes to show that Putin and the very small circle that he has around him are unlikely to play ball with any ad hoc tribunal. But there's also the question of whether any of these processes of gathering evidence, of prosecuting, of building a defense are going to be fruitful in bringing the conflict to an end, but most importantly, of protecting civilians within that space. And I think that that's really what we need to be thinking about as we continue to debate this. As for the debates themselves, I think it's been really interesting to see, as you said, that international lawyers initially really spoke in unison to condemn the invasion. But we're now seeing more and more debates around key themes, and particularly the proposed aggression tribunal. I will say that it's our job as academics and as advocates to challenge one another's intuitions and to disagree with one another. That is a sign of healthy academic and legal engagement in debate that we really need um, in times like this, but also outside of critical flashpoints in, in global politics. So debates are very much a good thing insofar as they are productive and geared towards securing justice or finding a resolution for the violence or towards protecting civilians. And so I think the real challenge for us as a discipline right now is to ensure that we are debating and engaging one another in a way that really pursues the goals of our discipline, um, which is indeed to, to ensure justice, to ensure peace, um, to protect civilians in, in vulnerable situations like we have right now. Of course, and I forgot to preface this when I mentioned the aggression tribunal, but the discussions are very legally technical and very, very much not a discussion about whether or not Russian or Putin's aggression constitutes the crime of aggression. That is not really what is being debated. It's more whether or not the tribunal is the technical legal measure or mechanism that might be best to handle the situation. Absolutely. Moving on from these discussions about the mechanisms, I thought we might spend the rest of our time uh, looking at how international law is being perceived and how it's being used and how it's being impacted by this crisis. I think we could maybe start with two main questions that I have, which kind of bounce off each other, which are not easy questions uh, to say now, but they've been brought up a lot, which is why now and why not other situations? What right now is making this crisis so unique that it has brought international laws to such a forefront within the media, politics, and very much outside of the academic spheres? And then kind of on the same level, why have other situations around the world or crises not been tackled or been received in the same way? both in the media or from an international perspective, as we look at, let's say, Tigray or the Uyghurs or Yemen. Absolutely. I think, first of all, it's important to note that part of the significance of this conflict in the public sphere is the fact that Russia possesses nuclear weapons uh, and that Putin has signaled uh, possibly quite plausibly that he is willing to use those nuclear weapons if there is an escalation to the point that, that NATO in particular becomes involved. And I think that this threat of nuclear weapons has really captured international attention. It's possibly brought up some fears that were lingering from the Cold War right back to the surface. And so that's definitely one dimension. But I also think that there was a really clear indicator of why this conflict in particular is so important by comparison to others. 
And it was the way in which it was characterized by some key political figures in the early days of the invasion. Uh, and that includes, for example, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It was this description of Vladimir Putin as a man that has brought conflict back to the European continent. And I think that that characterization in political discourses explains why there has been such a huge outpouring of attention to the legal dimensions of this conflict. And I say that because of the presuppositions that underpin a statement like that. He has brought war back to the European continent. Implies, of course, that there was an assumption that Europe, by comparison to other parts of the world, was always going to remain stable and free of conflict. So insofar as European states and their allies, including the United States of America, have been exporters of violent conflicts to other parts of the world, to the Middle East, to the North of Africa, in the past couple of decades, we perhaps haven't seen that same kind of level of attention because there has been this assumption that outside of Europe, these are things that happen, that war is a thing that happens outside of Europe, that it's part of day-to-day -day life, that it's a reality. And in exporting conflicts to places like this, the legal conscience maybe hasn't been as strong, but there has been this assumption that Europe itself will be will be clean, will be civilized. Uh, that is a word that has been thrown around alarmingly often in the past couple of weeks. And we've seen a rupture to that assumption in what's happened in Ukraine. And I think that that has really um, been cataclysmic in bringing about the, the kind of extent of the response that there has been to what's happening in Ukraine. In saying that, I will also acknowledge that it is not the case that other situations haven't attracted attention. So the distinction I'm drawing here is that there hasn't been the same extent of attention to other situations as there has been right now. So let's talk, for example, um, about Myanmar, where there is another situation, uh, a clear genocide that is ongoing. Yes, we haven't seen the same amount of attention from international lawyers and from the media, but at the same time, we have seen slow progress. We have a case brought by the Gambia um, against Myanmar in respect of violations of um, the Genocide Convention. We've seen just today, in fact, the Secretary of State of the United States publicly say that there is a genocide ongoing in Myanmar that is a violation of the convention and that there need to be legal consequences for that. So we do see that attention is being paid to these issues, but just not to the same extent. And I will say the same uh, with Iraq, for example. I was living in Australia at the time of the invasion of Iraq, and I clearly remember that key Australian international lawyers were very much united in saying that that invasion was unlawful. But those calls maybe didn't capture the attention of the media in the same way that they have with Ukraine. And there perhaps weren't as extensive calls about international criminal law, for example, or a tribunal for acts of aggression. Um, and I think that those things very much then run into the Eurocentrism of our legal imaginaries, as I like to call them. Uh, the fact that that was something going on elsewhere that was kind of beyond our life world, beyond our life experience. I agree. I think that's it's really important to also recognize that there's different perspectives at play 
And I think that when we then discuss how international law is being perceived and used, I think that leads to main camps to discuss, which is I think the international lawyers and the scholars themselves, but then also the power of the media and the politicians influence that, that they have on these type of conflicts, I think, as you've mentioned already. So I might want to lean there first and ask, how does the media really interact with international law? And maybe more importantly, what are the choices being made by the media? And why are these important and how we perceive these type of issues and crises? Sure. I think what we're seeing in the media right now is possibly a symptom of how quickly information can travel. So one of the really interesting things has been the constant uh, news stories about war crimes that are being committed by Russia in Ukraine. And obviously the evidence points to the fact that that is happening, that is deplorable as all war crimes are, and there should be consequences for that. But because of the extent of media attention on Ukraine right now, as well as the extent to which people within Ukraine are, are using Twitter and social media outlets, we're seeing oftentimes that there are there's a trial by media going on right now. The media is concluding that there are war crimes ongoing before a particular attack has even been verified, um, before there have been any proper proceedings um, against those people responsible. So we're seeing a quite overactive media on one level, I think, asserting violations of international law. And that sits in a quite uncomfortable relationship, I think, with the other side of media coverage of this conflict, which are the also widespread suggestions that international law has fallen into desuetude or that it's completely irrelevant now. Um, I think a, a journalist for The Guardian reported last week that Putin had ripped up the UN Charter, um, an Australian newspaper uh, said something about how international law is always being construed to the benefit of whichever significant political figure has the microphone at a particular point in time. So we're seeing these reports from media uh, that essentially say that international law just doesn't matter anymore because of what's going on, because of the fact that states as powerful as Russia clearly don't respect it at all. And these are actually very important moments these moments in which the media reports such things are, are significant because they inform the ways in which the general public perceives international law, the ways in which it generates demands of world leaders to abide by or ignore international law, about the ways in which international law is maybe taught uh, in the classroom and beyond that as well. And I think it's very dangerous to see these kinds of assumptions being made in the media and particularly without adequate engagement with international lawyers and scholars themselves. So you'll often see these stories being reported without really any, any interviews with international lawyers, um, without any consultation with international law scholarship. Uh, and that can really be quite harmful in the long term for the relevance and the effectiveness of our discipline um, and of international law and practice as well. As you mentioned, almost the international scholars missing from this debate in the, to the public eye. I'd like to then maybe lastly focus on the role of international lawyers and international scholars within this situation and within this crisis. 
And I would also, of course, like to point everyone to a great article that you wrote, which was one of the main reasons why I first invited you on the guest about a visible college on Opinio Euros, which I recommend everyone to also read. And we had discussed when we were planning this recording, and you had mentioned something very important about the critical role of international law's own history and how we need to be critically aware of that. And I'd really like to ask you to maybe delve a little bit more into that and how that's important and how that influences this. I'll make two points. First of all, again, I think that what we're seeing in the international legal response right now is a symbol, a marker of where international law scholarship is going in general. we are all using social media outlets like Twitter more than we ever have before. And so one of the things that I mentioned in that article, and thank you for for reading and mentioning it, is Oscar Schachter talked about this invisible college of international lawyers long, long ago. Said that international lawyers might be spread out around the world, but they're all united in their pursuit of certain goals, such as peace and, and human rights. And I think that what Twitter and and outlets like that do, especially in these flashpoints, is highlight that maybe that college isn't as invisible anymore, that we are all actually talking and a lot more visible um, than we ever have been before. And it's important to analyze that as well and to study it and to think about its implications. And I think that what we're seeing is that there is so much you can do with international law There are so many arguments you can make. There are so many ways in which you can try to bring about particular political outcomes, the end of a conflict, the withdrawal of Russian forces, the establishment of new tribunals. And I think there about another article, which I loved as a student of international law, which was written by Susan Marks, who talked about how international lawyers were crippled by anxieties of influence that international law as practice and as a discipline was being held back by the anxieties that we have about the presence of law in politics and about the presence of politics in law. That our inability to keep those things separate makes us worried about what our discipline may may and may not be able to do. And I wonder if the extent of the response from international law scholars is a sign that we're overcoming those anxieties as a discipline, that we're no longer anxious about the presence of law in politics and vice versa, and that we're actually thinking quite creatively about how law can intervene in the political. So that's one interesting dimension. The other, I think, is also as we talk about international law among one another, as we teach it to our students, to think reflexively about the history of our own discipline, because we can indeed find traces of this conflict within the historical development of international law. That the law has itself created and sustained some of the systems and structures and power dynamics that are shaping this conflict right now. So let's think, for example, about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty which has been ratified by almost the entire international community and preserves the right of five states, including Russia and the US, to keep their nuclear weapons. Now, in his dissenting opinion in the ICJ's Marshall Islands decision, Judge Bejawi rightly pointed out that the non-proliferation treaty is an anomaly in that states have consented to inequality between them through a treaty. 
And in the aftermath of that decision to dismiss the Marshall Islands' claims under the NPT, Anthony Angie pointed out that the world we're living in now is an empire of nuclear weapons, that it is subject to the whims of those five states that can lawfully possess nukes. And of course, we can see that empire very much at work in the present conflict and in the discussion that we're having about it today, that Russia's possession of nuclear weapons and the plausibility of its threat to use them has certainly shaped its conflict. And also what is and isn't on the table in terms of the resolution of that conflict. And I think we can similarly see, and David Kennedy has obviously masterfully written about this, even the laws of war that we were talking about earlier, indeed demarcate and legitimize certain forms of killing as being legitimate. And we can very much see that in Russian discourses around what it's doing in Ukraine. So it makes claims about the distinction uh, that its precise weapons can make between civilians and combatants. It makes claims that where it is targeting facilities in high civilian areas, like television towers that are just sending out warnings for those areas to be cleared out. So we also have this uncomfortable relationship, I think, with international humanitarian law in that it aims to protect civilians. And yet it also says that in times of war, it's okay to do certain terrible things. And I think it's very important to be aware of these historical developments in our discipline that are shaping the conflict. That's not to say that we should do away with international law, that we should delegitimize it in times like this, but that we should be aware of the role that it has played as well. Thank you very much. I think we should probably end our episode here, considering we've had a lot of untangling to do. And for that, I would very much like to thank you again for coming on as a guest and presenting such a great summary and all of your thoughts and opinions. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I would like to thank Dr. Vivek Bhatt for untangling such a complicated topic and making it much more digestible. In the description of this episode, you can also find the two Opinion Euros articles that I refer to when discussing the Special Aggression Tribunal, written by Kevin John Heller and Kerry McDougall. You can also find there Dr. Vivek Bhatt's own article on the Visible College, which I can highly recommend. Secondly, I would like to thank everyone for listening to this episode and for your continued support on the podcast. This is the first episode going live in 2022, and I cannot wait to share what other episodes are currently being worked on. Thank you for your support, and thank you again, Dr. Vivek Bhatt. Talk to you soon.